Heavenly Father, we thank you that we get to come before you, we get to sit before your word, your revealed word, and by the power of the Spirit, allow your Spirit to do the work that he does in opening our eyes to the truth, of convicting our hearts of this truth, and applying it in our lives this coming week. Please now, do the work that only you can do. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this is week two of a three-week uh, sermon series, if you will, on the Lord's uh, the, the Sabbath, uh, sometimes referred to in Christian circles as the Lord's Day. Uh, last week, we had a chance to take a look at the foundation of where it is that, that we look to, uh, the first place we see this understanding of the Sabbath, and we saw that it was uh, founded in creation and the creation story. In fact, the title today uh, is a continuation of that theme in that uh, the message is the goal of creation is a never-ending Sabbath. And that's true. We saw that played out in the literary design uh, in last week's uh, message. Before we get into this week's message, I want to give us something to consider as we're, as we're studying today. If you live in Phoenix, Arizona, if you're not an out-of-towner visiting with us today, you are, for all intents and purposes, a desert dweller. That means you have a desert. You have the rough climate of a desert that you live in. And other people that have all the green trees, those pine trees, and all the other varieties of green trees that we don't necessarily have unless we plant them because they don't come naturally here, they may see the desert and they may overlook the desert and not see its beauty. But if you've ever gone out in the desert, particularly now, this time of the year, you'll start to see the green grass it's, that only lasts for a month or so. You'll start to see the flowers, the purples, the oranges, the, even the white ones that are so close to the ground, you have to just pause for a second as you're walking to see them all. The beauty of the cactus blooming, it's gorgeous. But if you don't stop to study it, you miss the beauty of it. And that's what we're doing today. We're digging in once again to study the Sabbath. The, the fourth commandment that most people, I shouldn't say most people, that is the, mo the commandment that is most overlooked, I'll, I'll say it that way. Everyone will say, oh, I'll, I'll grant you the other nine. But that commandment, keep holy the Lord's day, the Sabbath, that one's, no, nah, that one was fulfilled by Christ. We don't have to keep pay attention to that one anymore. So we're, we're on this journey to understand this, this Sabbath. What does it look like for us today? But as last week we looked at the foundation, today we'll look somewhat again at the foundation, but we're looking for the foundation to point to what is it, what is this, this other kind of Sabbath that we're not experiencing today that we will experience in fullness in eternity? So we'll, we'll uh, take a look at that this week, and my hope is that as we look closely at God's creation, we will better understand the beauty of what God intends for his people today and in the future. Well, do me a favor, if you will, and look at the sermon outline that I have written up on your bulletin. I want us to take a look at the takeaway. This is the, the, the thing, if you, if you forget everything else as the sermon, it's the takeaway that you want to walk with and, and be reminded of and allow it to help you in your walk this week. The takeaway is this, let us be about the work God designed for us in creation and continues to call us to do as a ch church 
hmm, that's interesting. There's some link between what he designed in creation and what he called us to do as the church during the week. And let us with wholehearted joy partake in our weekly Sabbath day worship. That's what we're partaking in right now. So with that, you can also see in the sermon outline, we're going to take a look at God, the divine exemplar. He's the one who has given us the pattern for us to follow. And if you don't realize that, you'll miss it because it's implied. It's not explicit. And then we go to man, God's image bearers in capacity and vocation. What does it look like to be an image bearer as far as your capacity? And what God has called you today and me today. Not just in the Old Testament, but today carrying forward. And then lastly in that, we'll look at the third part of that, which is the reward upon completion of this work. And if you've never heard a reward tied to creation and what God gave us in the covenant that we know as the covenant of the works or the Adamic covenant, the covenant that he established with Adam, I'm excited for you that hopefully that you can now, hopefully you'll see it, and you'll, you'll get an opportunity later this week to meditate on it and go, well, I, I missed that. All right. I never thought about it from that perspective. It's there. And it, it is a blessing to see it. So let's, let's take a look at God, the divine exemplar. Uh, in, we know that, again, from last week, God created everything he created in six days, and then he rested. And we looked at a little bit of, of that rest word is Shabbat in uh, Hebrew, and it means to cease from working. That's the application of it. It doesn't necessarily mean cease as in no activity. It means cease from working, for, and particularly a particular time, kind of work. So let me ask you this question. Was the earth in the first six days... In that creation, was the earth simply a place for mankind to live? Or did God intend it to be something greater and more magnificent? Is the earth just a place that God created and we're supposed to live? And kind of like the uh, deist believes, he kind of wound the clock, he walked away, and he's like, you guys figure it out from here. I've given you everything you need to know, and see ya. Go without me. No, it's actually something very much more, and it's, it's more than just a, a science project. Can you guys figure out and live in this atmosphere, this culture that I've given you? It's much more than that. Let's, let's use some of the characters in Genesis 1 through 3, chapters 1 through 3, to see if we can figure out what God is doing in creation. We talked about it last week, but I want to remind us of that. First character, chiefest character. You now know what that means. God. We're all talking about God. Second character that we see in here, we see two more characters. We see Adam and Eve, those that were made as image bearers. They bear his image. But there's other characters. We see the serpent, who we later in the Bible learned was the Satan, or Satan, or the devil, the one who is the fallen angel that is in opposition to God, that wants mankind to sin and fall off this track of fellowship with God. But we also see cherubim. We see them in chapter 3. Cherubim are the angels that were posted at the entrance to the garden after Adam and Eve were banished from it for sinning. And they had the swords that would, that would uh, wave in e any direction, in all directions, 
They were flaming swords to keep people away from the garden. You could not regain entrance into the garden, and particularly it tells us to keep them away from the tree of life. And we'll learn a little bit more about that today. So what do all these characters tell us about the place called the Garden of Eden? Well, you need to know a little bit about ancient Near East culture in order to, un to understand. So let me go back over some of that ancient Near East culture. In the ancient Near East culture, and later revealed in the Bible, we don't get it revealed here. We do get it revealed later in the Bible. They had an understanding of sacred space. Sacred space could be something referred to as a tabernacle, sanctuary, or a temple. It was a space where God dwelled, and man would try and connect with God. Particularly, priests would have the role of engaging with God and then bring back his message to the people. If you were a worthy priest, you could go into the presence of your God in the ancient Near East. I'm not speaking of the God. I'm talking about all the ancient Near East cultures. But, if you, but you can hear the similarity to what we know is the truth. But if you were an unworthy priest, you had no access into that. Now think about how that ties with us. And what we just read uh, a few weeks back, or actually chapter 19 of Exodus, where God has established that he wants the whole nation of Israel be, to be a nation of priests, a holy nation. He wants the nation to be able to come into his presence, not just the, the, the official priests, but the, but the nation itself, the people. It is a gracious act that the others, the other false gods of the ancient Near East, I, I, don't, I don't know why I'm doing air quotes for false gods, because they are false gods. Uh, uh, they, they have no provision for anything other than these priests, and they are whimsical when they can come into their presence. There's no standard of righteousness, no understanding of when the good will come or, or when it may be that the God is upset and will strike them dead. They always are in a state of fear. That's not our God. In the six days of creation, God made all the earth capable of being a temple. Let that one sink in for a second. He's dealing with temple language here in creation. He has made it so that God could dwell in the presence of mankind. That happens in sacred space, tabernacles, sanctuaries, temples. He's made it capable for the whole earth to be a temple, but only a small portion of the earth is actually a temple, and that is the Garden of Eden. That is why you see whether it's in the tabernacle that we're going to see uh, that the, the Israelites are, are, have been deemed and instructed how to specifically make the tabernacle. And later with the temple in King Solomon's day, there's all of this beauty involved in there where it, it, the, the, the inside is a picture of the Garden of Eden with the fruit that they're called to, uh, to make ornaments that look like them, and they're, they're made of gold, or you, you have cherubim that guard the Holy of Holies, and no one can go in there except the, the high priest on a one day of the year. It, we, it gives us the idea that this is the, the, the temple garden, and it's supposed to. 
Anybody who would be in that, those temple settings or that, that uh, tabernacle, for them it would be more uh, the temple setting, would see that and understand that, that it was a reflection back and they would go, oh, I know that the, the Garden of Eden is a picture of God's temple. Him, God coming down, heaven and earth with, heaven, I should say, coming down and having a, a place that overlaps with earth, where the angelic realm overlaps. That's why we see Satan and the cherubim in that space, because heaven did overlap at one time in the Garden of Eden with earth. So God creates in six days, and God created and he ordered the world so that all of life would flourish. Not just mankind, but all of life would flourish. You remember the first, the day uh, one, two, and three, he creates realms. The sky, the, uh, the, then he drops down to the sea, and then he's got the land. And then in days four, five, six, he fills those realms. And they're symbiotic. They work with, within each other. And it, it is able to sustain all of life, this thing we call earth. But again, we know that it's just the Garden of Eden, that small spot first where the garden rests. So on the seventh day, God rests and ceased from creating, but his work of creation excuse me, because his work of creation was complete. All right, so we've got a pattern. We see what God is doing. He works on creation and then on the, for six days, and on the seventh day, he rests. He's not inactive. He now rules and reigns. He's taking that action. It's a different action than, than what he was doing in creating. So let's, let's take a look at man's a man, point number two there, God's image bearers in capacity and vocation. And let's start off with capacity. You have it there on your outline. We've got to look through scripture to see what we can understand about what was man's capacities pre-fall. And when I say fall, that just means when Adam sinned, we, he thrust all of mankind, all of human being kind, if you will, that comes behind him into the same state of sin. But prior to that, he hasn't sinned yet. So let's take a look at that pre-fall status, if you will, or beingness, if you will. Ecclesiastes 7.29 explains one of man's pre-fall capacities. And it says this, See, this alone I found, that God made man upright. What does it mean for God to make man upright? Well, it means that God made man as an image bearer to bear his image of righteousness. Man was born without sin. Man was born, Adam was born as the first representative, righteous, so he could properly reflect, image, imitate all words trying to convey that he's, as an image bearer, he's supposed to demonstrate this invisible God to the rest of physical creation as being righteous. That's one of the components we see or one of the capacities we see of mankind in their pre-fall state. Well then, in Colossians 3, 9 through 10, Paul shares a second capacity. This one might be, when I, when, when I was first learning this, I thought, oh, that's fascinating. 
I didn't realize I never actually caught that when I was reading this verse. Paul shares this second pre-fall capacity while explaining to the Christian what it means to be renewed in Christ. Listen to what he says. Do, uh, do not lie to one another, seeing that no one, excuse me, seeing that you have put off the old self, meaning the self that is controlled by sin. When you are renewed in Christ, you still sin. You're not controlled by sin. It doesn't, it doesn't own you, if you will. You're not enslaved to it. You have the person of the Holy Spirit living in you. As you seek the Holy Spirit in prayer, uh, and as you, as you meditate, and you walk throughout your day, and you're reminded of the truths of the Bible, and you're going to the Spirit to ask for the, the sustaining grace so we don't sin, we don't have to. But pre, before we were renewed in Christ, we sat, sinned all the time. It was our nature. It was our nature passed down by Adam himself. So it says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. And you heard PJ give the law and gospel that focused on those practices. And have put on the new self. And what is this new self? This other capacity? Which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of the creator. Oh, interesting. Be what, one time we can deduce then from, un, from seeing that verse, we, we take what we learned there and we go, wait, that means before the fall, we had a, a, a knowledge of God that is completely different for us when we were born. What, what, was, what was going on when we were born? Well, we can see here that through the fall of mankind into sin, our minds became stained by sin. The, the Bible talks about us being deprived. We were deprived of the true knowledge of God. In fact, another way the, the Bible says it is our, our minds and our thinking became polluted and darkened. If you've ever tried to, as I get older, I can't read without light anymore. I am desperate for light. I think that, thank you so much that Paul put this light here. If I had to preach based on that light, I'd be walking over closer to something because I gotta have light in order to see. The mind of mankind post-fall is darkened. It doesn't know God as, as Adam and Eve once knew God in their pre-fall state. Let me, let me sum it up this way. To be made in the image of God means to be made righteous like God in obedience to his laws. You want to know if you're righteous? Do you line up with his laws? His laws are a reflection of his character. They help us. Some people go, oh, laws, rules, oh, no. I've done that before early in my walk. So many rules. If you see them as rules, as restrictive, then yes. But if you see them, in mean, that would be a natural way to think about it. But if you realize that laws are that which allow us to know what is right and wrong, I don't want to be unrighteous. Thank you for your gracious information that you gave us, that we now know what righteousness looks like. Amen. Continues on. To be made in the image of God means to be made righteous like our God. So that's our being, our beingness. In obedience to God's laws, that's our doing, and to have a true or accurate knowledge of God. 
We know that much from the Bible. That's what Adam and Eve possessed, or that were their capabilities before the fall. We are image bearers by nature of how we were, were created and by calling or what we were created to do. We were created to image God and his righteousness. So let's take a look at man's vocation then. This is where it starts to get interesting. If I've lost some of you, like, yeah, I already knew that. Good. Now let's take a look at the vocation and see how it applies to you today. So God created the earth so that one day the whole earth would be a temple. Adam and Eve's responsibility was to expand the temple from a single mountain garden called the Garden of Eden to the whole four corners of the earth. That was their role. God gave them that instruction. Let's take a look at that. As we look at Genesis 1.28, he says this in Genesis 1.28, And God blessed them, speaking of the man and the woman, and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Have babies. And by the way, if, again, I've said this over and over again. If you men think that men are here and women are here in the relationship, you can't even do the first thing God told you to do. You, we need to appreciate our wives. We can't make uh, God-bearing creatures without our wives. This is a partnership. This is a partnership where we're expected to be the leader of it, but we are not the dominator. We are the ones that love our wives and recognize their essence and their involvement and their partnership in this, what we're, we're called to do as a people of God. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. We have to look back at creation and go, what does subdue mean? And if you just go to your lexicon or your dictionary and go, well, it says this, you will miss it because it's out of context. The context we learned about subduing last week in creation is God creating and ordering. So when we get to the word in, in our passage today where it says, fill the earth and subdue it, it means bring it under the control, under control by, by bringing order to it. Every gardener knows that what the ordering is of a garden. You can't have weeds in it. You've got to have certain things in certain places. You've got to have it it's set up or the garden doesn't flourish. Well, he's using both garden language and he's talking about the temple as well. Both are in picture. Oftentimes, we only see the garden and we miss what he's telling us in the bigger picture. We need to bring order to God's temple as we move it outward the four corners of the earth. That's what Adam and Eve were called to do. And have dominion. Dominion is a, a king's rule. We are God's, who is the king, representatives on earth. So if you will, we are his viceroys or his vice regents. We are the ones that represent him as kingship over this. But it's a just and righteous kingship. One of the reasons why Israel was exiled, as we're told over and over in the Bible, is because they allowed unrighteousness, injustice into the kingdom. They failed to be these godly priests that said, no, we're not going to let that come in as part of their vocation. And it continues on. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then we move to Genesis 2.15 and God gives us that greater detail. And this is where you hear more and more the understanding is the connection to it being a temple because of the priestly words that are used here. In Genesis 2.15, it says this. 
Yahweh took, excuse me, Yahweh God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it. It's that same word, work, is used in explaining what the priests were to do in the temple. The reason it is, is God's making these connections. If they didn't get it before, they'll connect it now. They can see these connections. So he says to them, and man put him in the Garden of Eden to work it. In other words, to cause it to serve God's purpose. That's what they were called to do, Adam and Eve. This earth needs to serve God's purpose as a worldwide temple that I dwell in in your midst. You need to move this outward. In order to do that, you need to make the creation serve the purpose that was intended, the purpose I intended it to be, and that is to be a temple. And he continues on. And keep it. Keep it means that's in, in uh, the temple language. When, it's, when talking to the priests and, and God tells the priests you need to keep the temple, it's protected. It's prevent sin from coming into it. Adam's first sin is failing as a priest from protecting the garden, from allowing sin in the garden. When that snake first started talking to Eve, and we're told that he's in proximity to that snake, he should have stepped up right then and said, "Uh, uh, uh-uh-uh, no challenging God, and evil should have been prevented. It's that quick. That was his role. That was his vocation, and he failed. If any of you men, I say this to men because we've heard this before, that somehow... It was all Eve. If Eve wasn't around and didn't didn't entice us, we wouldn't have taken and everything would be fixed. No way. We were failing to be the priests God called us to be and keep the sin out of the garden. So we continue on. And Yahweh, this is verse 16, And Yahweh commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat, eat of it, you shall surely die. All right, I'm going to jump straight into, I'm purposely making a clunky connection because I want to get you guys to kind of do, kind of like, what? Let's talk about the reward upon completion of this work. I haven't given you guys enough material to make this a smooth transition. I want you to struggle at it, to try and put it together. Notice how God initiates a covenant with Adam in verses 16 and 17. And you go, well, there was no word covenant. Does it require God to use the word covenant in order for there to be a covenant? No. It's called the word fallacy, that if it doesn't specifically say it or explicitly say it, then it's not in there. No, the concept is in there, and we're going to see it. But before we see it, I want you to see it from a gracious standpoint. Because sometimes, again, that, that idea of rules are bad, overrides our thinking, and we hear covenant, and we think, oh, here we go. God is the great Eeyore. He's the doggy downer. He's just going to put all these restrictions on us, and he's not going to make life any fun. That's not what God is doing at all here. He's the most gracious God, because listen to this truth, and hopefully your mind will start to process. Maybe it'll be some conversations in that room during our fellowship on this. Here's a, a combined effort of a statement by two different theologians. It says this, God initiates divine covenants for the advancement and betterment of the state of mankind. Every time God initiates a covenant in mankind or with mankind, with somebody that is is carrying out the mission of salvation, it's a betterment 
It's an advancement of the condition of mankind. So covenants are good. Covenants are very good. In fact, he continues on and says this, they are not merely to sustain man in the condition he was prior to those covenants being revealed to him. All right. So covenants have, they have our betterment at, at heart. So God's saying, I'm engaging with you for your benefit. That's pretty important. Just the fact that God's engaging with us is our benefit. Think about that. The gods did not in, 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 interact with regular people in the ancient Near East in their, in their false religions. They only interacted with the priests. So let's take a look at this. This, this covenant with Adam that God makes. This is a conditional covenant. It requires perfect obedience. They were born in righteousness. They were capable of obedience. They didn't have sin hindering them. They didn't have hearts that were pulling them somewhere else. They were, they were righteous. In fact, in this understanding of they were supposed to be perfect obedience, there's this understanding that disobedience would result in death. He actually explicitly said so. The death is eventual physical death, but it is immediate spiritual death. Nick, what are you talking about? Well, physical death didn't happen right there, but it was guaranteed to happen. The spiritual death is alienation from God. No more would they be in God's temple, in his presence. They would be banished from him. And on a spiritual level, they had a broken relationship. If there is no Savior to bring about salvation and we stay in that status, we will be forever separated from God, which is the worst thing for his image bearers to be in. If you think you can be separated or alienated from God and be happy, then you think that a screwdriver is actually a hammer. We are most happy, we are most satisfied when we are acting in the capacity of how we've been designed. Don't believe the lie out there. When you go to Vegas, everything stays in Vegas, or whatever the saying is. Like somehow, oh, you can go to Vegas and really play it up and have a great time. No one needs to know. No, no. There's so much sorrow in that. There's so much broken relationships. There's so much guilt that they have on their own conscience. No. When you, you are not acting in the capacity when you are what you are designed for, a kingly representative, and you go represent Satan... It's no good. It's a lie. It's a trap. Let's continue on. There is an implied reward in that. You go, no, no, no. I just heard death. I didn't hear anything. I didn't see the word reward. And certainly, I, I don't see how it's implied. Let me read to you. The conditional nature of this covenant suggests that if death was the result of disobedience, then some type of qualitative higher state of life was the reward. So the opposite of death is if you, if you complete this life in obedience, something greater, all covenants are a betterment of mankind, something better in life of higher qualitative condition is given as an implied reward. The, one, of the, one of the components that we can see is this, is we know the reward because we know that the tree of life was in the, in the garden. 
The tree of life functions as a sign and a pledge. If you're obedient, you can partake of that, that tree of life. So what does God do in a gracious act when man sins? Those cherubim that might look like mean bullies that won't let you back in God's presence, they're making sure that Adam and Eve and all of their progeny, all those who followed them, don't take from the tree of life in a state of which is a state of damnation, a state of separation, of alienation. They don't, God graciously does not want mankind to stay in that alienated state. So he places the cherubim there to say, never will you have access to this tree until we see it in Revelation again, when we're allowed to take of that tree later on and partake in eternal life. So we can, it continues on here. We, we sit there and we have this understanding. So wait, Pastor Nick, are you saying this is kind of like probation? Yeah. I wish I had a better word. Probation has a very negative idea to it. But if you can think of it as the positive, look, if you finish this, if you don't disobey and you extend the garden to the corners of the earth, then a higher state of life is your reward, and it's signaled, it's represented, it's pledged by way of the existence of the tree of life being in the garden. The tree of life points to, it's a, it, it typifies a type of, of, of life that we will have, this eternal life, and we're going to talk more about what that looks like, but it's in the future. What they are doing now is they're doing temple expansion work six days out of the week, and then one day out of the week, they stop the temple expansion work. God did creation work six days. We, or our ancestors, were called to do temple expansion work in their six, six days, but then the, the seventh day, they rested. Well, let's continue on and see. Nick, you said there was this pointing to this eternal state, this better qualitative state. Where do you see that? Because I don't see that. Well, let's take a look at, go back to Genesis 2.15. We, we, we talked about it. We read it in the English, but I purposely didn't give you the Hebrew on one part of this. Look at this. It says this, Yahweh God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Okay, Nick, fascinating. I don't get it. What, where is this, this thing, this reference to this other type of higher qualitative Sabbath, this eternal Sabbath? Well, the word put, it's a verb in there, as we all know. It's in a particular tense that, that it, it works in such a way that the subject, I'm going to get a little geeky on you. You're going to have to bear with me. The subject of the sentence is causing the object to do something. The verb there, and this, by the way, the subject is God. God is causing Adam and Eve to do something. He's more than just putting. It's right that the, that the translators put the word put there because geographics, what's happening, lo, a location, is the most important thing that he wants communicated here. He's put, taking him from the wilderness and putting him in the garden of Eden. Okay, but Hebrew says, based on the tense, there's more going on there, as well as what's going on in the background with our understanding of temple as, as the space, the sacred space. It means 
that God is causing Adam to participate in the action of the verb. So you have to know what the verb means. You know what the verb normally means in, in uh, Hebrew? It means to rest. There's a second type of rest God is saying that we miss because we don't know the Hebrew. We've we got to rely on, on, the, on the translators. And the translators have to pick a word. They picked a good word to deal with it as far as a location thing, but there's deeper going on here. God caused Adam to partake in some type of a rest here, and it means to rest, settle down, or dwell. Dwell is our word. When God puts Adam in the garden, he puts him in the garden to dwell with him. He causes, he causes Adam to participate in what is already going on. And what is already going on in the action is God is dwelling in the garden. God takes the man out of the wilderness, puts him in the garden with him, and says, here I am. You get to dwell with God. This is the eternal picture. that This is what was intended that we would have this worldwide garden. This is what is intended in eternity that we would dwell with God with, with all of it, uh, eternity there, with all of, in a state where it's never ending. Let me say it that way. So mankind was put in the garden to dwell, but mankind dwelt in Yahweh's temple, in the presence of God. Six days Adam and Eve worked on the temple expansion of the garden without the presence of frustrating excuse me, without the presence of sin, frustrating and making their jobs difficult. We're not going to talk about it now. If you've got time to stay for the postscript, there's a whole neat theology on how that connects to the curse, how the sin frustrates, and how God purposely made it so that Adam and Eve, in their respective primary roles, would feel the weight of the curse of the sin, and you'll see it's tied to temple work, tied to temple work expansion. But we won't go in there any more than that. I'll just give a little plug for our afternoon service. With that, let's take a look at, at the understanding that put on the seventh, we are called to put on the seventh day Sabbath. We're, the idea may be better stated that we have a seventh day Sabbath that looks forward. That's what we're doing here. It looks forward to what was accomplished by Christ who lived a righteous life, was the perfect Adam, who died for all of us that were not obedient. We were given sinful natures, and you don't need any time to realize you are sinful because we all sin. He died for us who were not obedient so that one day we will have a qualitatively different life, that what we will do in eternity is all focused on this idea of an eternal rest. You don't have to do temple guard, excuse me, you don't have to do temple expansion anymore. When you step into heaven, there's no, no, there's no more building of the temple. Your time has come. The, your, your time on earth has passed. And you now have some taste of what it feels like to be in the presence of God, but it's still not the fullness. Christ Jesus is coming back to rule and reign on this physical earth where Christ Jesus will remove all sin, all the sinners, judge them. 
He recreates the earth. The, the idea of recreating the earth is he's now taking the garden temple concept and he makes it worldwide. He is the Adam that completed the temple work. He is the Adam that comes back and we live as what was intended. And what is the reward? Not only is it eternal life, we live in resurrected bodies. These bodies that are somehow different. We have to look to God as the pattern of that. Some of what Christ Jesus was able to do in his resurrected body. And as you look back and you think about it, some of what he did has, has some tie to his body is now more capable to interact with the spiritual realm. He eats, but he doesn't need to eat. Food doesn't, isn't required of him. He just eats to draw in fellowship. He goes, and I don't know how much of this is, is from Christ to us, but twice at least we're told that he shows up on the other side of a locked door and shows himself to these people. You, you get your mind wondering, what will this eternal Sabbath be like? What will these redeemed bodies, what will this incredible presence of God be like? I want to give you a, a little taste of this. We took, and I will end here. In Genesis 3.8, Genesis, the third chapter, everyone goes, oh, that's the chapter where, where man falls. That's the bad chapter. Yeah, you're right. But something happens in Genesis 3.8 that actually gives us a lot of helpful information. It says this. And they heard, this is Genesis 3, 8, and they heard the sound of Yahweh, this is Adam and Eve, walking, excuse me, Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God among the trees of the garden. What I want to do is I want to take... Uh, an opportunity to examine. What does that mean? Yahweh was walking with God. I will, I will suggest to you that most theologians will tell you that is condescending language. That is language that we can't get it, so he talks in such a way that he makes man sound like he is walking. Excuse me, that he makes God sound like he is walking. I'm suggesting to you, absolutely it could be God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, that's walking in a sense of he's in their presence, they can't see him. But I'm suggesting to you that this is the second person of the Trinity in form, and he is actually walking among them. And I want to show you why I hold to that truth. This walking with God involves the immediate presence of God. It involves a ceasing of temple expansion work by man. When God walks with you, you are no longer doing temple expansion work. You are in God's presence. You are worshiping. And what does that worshiping look like? It looks like first it's initiated by way of God teaching or shepherding his sheep. And then organic worship by mankind as the awe of God's presence. In other words, his glorious, perfect character. And his loving teaching overwhelms mankind. You cannot help but worship when you're in the presence of that glory and you're not hindered by sin, trying to take your attention away. Let's see, did anybody else walk with God in the Bible? Well, let's take a few examples. Enoch, 
walked with, it says this in Genesis 5.22, Enoch walked with God. All right, I'm going to give you examples, and I'm not saying these are one for one, but I am telling you, I am suggesting to you that these are slices, these are tastes, if you will, that they are given the opportunity to taste what eternal Sabbath will taste like for us. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. I think, I think Enoch probably walked most purely with God in a state of absolute worship, and God took him. Not, not necessarily for, for, I'm not suggesting that it's a works-based theology. I'm not suggesting it at all. But God chose Enoch, chose that exact wording to give us a reflection back of what, he is, what is happening with God and, this, and Enoch, one of these faithful of his. Genesis 6, 9 informs us that these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. Interesting. One of our capacities is to reflect the righteousness of, of man. We are now capable again of doing, excuse me, righteousness of God. We're now capable of reflecting that because we are renewed in Christ. And we had that capability before we fell to Christ. Excuse me. Goodness gracious. We fell to sin. But we see here, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. And it says, Noah walked with God. I can't help but think that he's walking in the presence of the, the glorious one that he's overwhelmed with. Of course, when Noah is told to build an ark in the middle of the desert, that makes no sense. All he needs to know is that as God said it, and that it is enough, and he will do what he needs to do because God said to do it. Abraham was instructed by God to walk with God in his presence. Listen to this. Genesis 17, 1 through 3. This has given you a little more clue on why I, I believe, and we've talked about this before. There's so much of the second person of the Trinity, the Son, Jesus Christ himself. It says, when Abraham was 99 years old, Yahweh appeared to Abram. He appeared. And when God appears, it's form, not flesh, when it's in the Old Testament. Form, not flesh. Form, not flesh. Form, not flesh. What form does, does God take? Takes human form. Which person of the Trinity takes human form? Only Jesus Christ. Not the, God the Father. Not the Holy Spirit. Never, not once in all of Scripture. So let's continue on. Abram, excuse me. When Abram was 99 years old, Yahweh appeared to Abram and said to, to him, I am God Almighty. In other words, I am El Shaddai. Walk before me. And listen to what he says. And be blameless. Engage in this righteousness so you can be in my presence. That I may make a covenant between me and you. Oh, I'm going to take you to another level. I'm going to bless you even further, Abraham. At this time, he's still called Abram. Remember, every covenant brings about a betterment of the state of mankind. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. There's some betterment to, to Abram. But remember, he uses all of his offspring to be the blessing that is going to produce Christ himself. Christ is, is, is an Israelite. The Israelites produce the offspring that will bring salvation and that all of the offspring came through Abram. What does it say in verse number three? Then Abram fell on his face. Of course he did. He stood in the presence of his God 
in a state of righteousness that God allowed. Sin was not a part of it. I'm not saying he's sinless. Don't hear that. But uh, the act of doing sin was not present in that moment. And he's overwhelmed by the presence of God's glory. And he falls to his face. He worships, we are told. In fact, all three patriarchs walked with God. And how do you know that, Nick? Because we're told. Listen to this. And they, before I read it, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, before I read the scripture, I want to share with you that what, God is, what is happening here is God is allowing each of the patriarchs that lead up to the nation of Israel to experience some form, some taste of this eternal Sabbath, this ability, this state of being in such pure worship of God that you are overwhelmed by his presence. We continue on in Genesis 48, 15 to 16. This is Jacob blessing his son Joseph. And he says this, And he, Jacob, blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd, he is my teacher. He is the one who has guided me as a shepherd would in all truth. He is the one who has given direction to my life. Jacob, the trickster, is a patriarch because of God's intervention in shepherding his heart. The God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, the angel of the Lord we know in the Old Testament is the second person of the Trinity in form, not flesh. Jacob just said the angel. He's referring to the angel of the Lord, which means he's referring to Christ Jesus. Ble excuse me. The, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys and let them, in, let, excuse me, and in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. This is a picture of the Sabbath the seventh day rest activity that differs from the six days of temple work. Yahweh, who dwelt with Abram, excuse me, with Adam and Eve in the temple garden of Eden, came to walk with them on the Sabbath to share in the fellowship which evokes worship. Adam and Eve, by their pre-fall nature, would have been in a state of awe or organic worship because they were in the presence of their maker, standing face to face with him, enjoying the presence of fullness, enjoying his presence with fullness of heart. So let me challenge you on this as I close. You're here on the Lord's Day. You're here on what we refer to as the Christian Sabbath. You're here on the day that is a memorial to what Christ accomplished what God told us we should be doing by ceasing from our regular activities of the world as well as our regular activities of temple expansion and we stop temple expansion in the, out in the world and we come as a people of God into this gymnasium. That's all this is. The church are the people. The church is not the structure. The church comes corporately to look back at what Christ has accomplished, and a look ahead 
of what this incredible fellowship, this eternal Sabbath rest, this eternal Sabbath worship looks like. So here's my challenge. Does this make sense to you? Is this how you view coming to church on Sunday? Worship will not be something we have to do in the future. It will be the very thing we want to do more than anything else. No have to. You can't help. I can help but do no other is the idea of eternal worship. I want to worship. That's my heart's greatest desire. There is no more sin hindering me and telling me I need to think about everything I need to do this week and be bogged down by all that. It will, be, it will organically, that's how it is the desire, it will organically flow out of the heart because it will be our greatest desire. That's what we look for. When we come to church on Sunday, when we come to this, the Sabbath day rest, beg God to give you a heart that recognizes he comes in the midst of our presence in a unique way. We carry the God who dwells in us, the person of the Holy Spirit, in our everyday lives. But when we come in here, God is in our presence in a different, unique, corporate way. We are told God walks among us. We know that as the person of the Holy Spirit, which is also referred to as the Spirit of Christ or the, the Spirit that Jesus Christ and the, and the Father sent. We don't get the form or the flesh walking in us. We get the Spirit that was sent as a guarantee of what we will one day experience in the eternal Sabbath. Where God, Jesus Christ, the God-man, who is both God and, phys and physical flesh, will for eternity walk among us here on the earth when he comes to set up the new Jerusalem, the new heavens on earth, Revelation talks about, where we will be sustained by the tree of life in a state of perfect, constant enjoyment, serving our purpose to exalt the king, rule and reign over this earth as God has called us to do as his representatives here, and yet God will be in our presence all the while. Praise be to God. Let's go to him in our prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We ask you that you let us be about the work that you designed for us in creation and continue to call us to do as the church this temple expansion work. Convict us that this is the things that we should be doing, whether it's mamas teaching their babies throughout the week, it's dads interacting with, with men and sharing the gospel with men at work or whatever it looks like in discipleship. We do the kingdom work throughout the week, advancing the temple as we are called to do, populating this earth with more and more temples all spreading outward in different directions over the globe, no longer from one focal point. Remind us of that. Each week has such significance. Remind us of that. And yet... Also remind us that the first day of the week now is the day that was a, the, where the work was accomplished. It's the Sabbath where we come to rest. Rest in knowing what Christ has done. Rest in knowing that the weary can come before him. 
Rest in knowing that what lies ahead is so much better than we could possibly know now. Remind us of that in the midst of our, our struggles throughout this week, in the midst of desiring to truly worship you on this day. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.